Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm here with the journalist James McIntyre, who wrote a piece in the 27th of October edition of the Church Times titled From Last Rites to a Second Chance about his four months in hospital over the summer. Um, James, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Hi Ed, great to see you. Start by asking um, what it was that happened on the 26th of May this year. It was a a pivotal moment in in your life really. Yeah, it ended up being so. Um, I mean, I just felt very ill that day um, initially. Um, I think I say in the piece it felt like a heavy hangover even though I stayed off alcohol the night before and I had kind of progressively worse pain in my stomach and I wasn't really going to do anything about it although I did take the day off uh, work and then a friend sort of said look you really do need to ring 111 and I did that they listened when when we ended up speaking attentively and said you need to ring 999 and then um uh, basically, a few hours later, you know, I was being taken to hospital and pretty quickly sent to ICU, um, where I would um, spend the next couple of months. Yeah. And what what happened next? Were your family alerted yeah. to close friends alerted to what was going on? Yes. So I called uh, my father, who was actually looking after my very sick mother at the time um, in Somerset and he had to make a very difficult decision to kind of prioritise coming to see me, which I feel badly about still, especially given what would then happen. But I had been diagnosed sort of around that time with acute pancreatitis, and it was life-threatening, as they kept telling me, the medics. I did end up sort of, you know, uh, nearly dying in a, in a five-week coma within my four months in hospital, uh, in ICU so it was a very difficult time and I, I do I kind of conclude that it's harder actually for very close loved ones than it is for you because you're in the middle of it and you know there's a fair amount of sort of drama and action and medics and things to distract you but I think if you're just coming every day as my father did to the hospital much of which you're unconscious it's very difficult yeah. And at what stage did you go into a coma when, when was the point when it got really serious and looked like it? So I think quite soon after I arrived at hospital and ICU, um, about a week or two in, um, I had a lot of breathing difficulties because, I mean, without going into the gory details, there was pressure on my lungs. And um, the doctors decided to put me in an induced coma or to offer to do that. And I agreed, uh, you know, not having much choice. And, and you know, I, I was up for trying to do anything to get through it um so yeah it was quite early on actually i mean how, how did all this feel because you, you you seemingly being fine on the 25th of may yeah. and this is a huge shock it's, it's a lot to take in and then did you think this might be might be it yes i mean it was it was a shock i mean i'm a, i have been in the past a bit of a hypochondriac and i've sort of banged on about all sorts of health things and then suddenly there's something very real where you're being told by doctors that you know you might not make it and you sort of pull a face and you know I have to say there was a doctor or one or two doctors actually who seemed to me to 
be very compassionate and kind of almost have a tear in their eyes. So it was all quite serious um, and it felt serious. But, I mean, I didn't get through it with any of my own strength. I, I put it down to the prayers of my friends and family and clergy at, at my church in South London. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was, it was difficult and it was, it was difficult because it went on for so long. I mean, um, you know, four months is a long time to spend in hospital. It's a, you know, in many ways it was a first world problem. I was in a great hospital, Chelsea and Westminster. Um, you know, the food was quite good and things like that, but no fresh air, uh, for, for the vast majority of that and, um, a lot of procedures. And it was, yeah, it took, uh, it took, I, I sort of learned a bit about patience because a lot of it was waiting around as well. How long were you in a coma for? Um, so the best part of five weeks, um, uh, they were trying to insert a, or I'm not sure what the phrase is, complete a tracheostomy where, um, you know, they put a tube through the throat to help you breathe. And I think it failed a couple of times, probably because I was struggling uh, you know, physically and trying to sort of resist. And then eventually it worked. And, um, you know, but at that point, I think a friend of mine counted who visited that I had 27 tubes of some sort kind of in me. Uh, I was, yeah, it was, it was quite a sort of sudden uh, change of circumstances. And so after five weeks, you, you came out of the coma. Were, were things kind of looking a little bit better then? Was that the reason you could come out of the coma? Um, it's a good question. I think they brought me out as soon as they could. I wouldn't say things were necessarily looking great, but I think they had, I don't, I must go back and ask them some, you know, a bit about it. If, if they ever have the time, I'd be interested to know more. Um, when they first brought me out of it, I couldn't, uh, I was only kind of semi-conscious. I couldn't really tell what was going on or what had happened. It took a while for the fog to clear. Um, and and then um, eventually I realised a couple of things. I realised that I'd very nearly died. Um, I think my father basically explained that to me, and he's not a man to exaggerate, so I knew it was serious. And secondly, that my mother very sadly had died while I was in the coma, and indeed the funeral had taken place while I was in the coma, so I'd missed all of that. That's, that's a huge amount to take <laughs> on, and, and you're in a state where you're struggling to... You, know, you said you had the fog. So was there quite a... I can yeah. ask a bit about the, the role your family and friends and, and clergy from the church played. Did they help you process that very shocking news? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I think my father and my sister were very uh, anxious about how to kind of break that news to me. And it was all very carefully done. But on your broader question, yes. I mean, my friends... My the clergy of, 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 of St. Peter's Stratton, Father Stephen Matthias and uh, Father Ben uh, um were amazing. They came regularly, they administered Holy Communion. Uh, they didn't sort of go on and on about religion. Uh, although um, I, I was pleased to have retained my faith throughout the, the process. Uh, but, but really, I relied on the prayers of other people. Uh, uh, who, uh, who who just ceaselessly supported me, and I'm deeply grateful. And I learned a lot about the decency of, and the goodness of people, and both the medics and uh, my friends, really, and family. 
So during this period, James, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty, people not, not, not knowing what's going to happen. You, you were very ill. But you write in the piece that there was one moment, it's why the piece is called From Last Rites to Second Chance, there's one moment where your, your parish priests did really think you were going to die. Or, or the, sorry, the doctors did. And yeah. they read the last rites. Yeah. Is that correct? That's a, yeah, that is correct. I mean, there was one day, I think, in the midst of the coma where the consultants took my father aside, I think, possibly my sister as well, I'm, I'm still trying to piece it together, uh, and said, look, you know, this is not looking good, the next 90 minutes are critical, but it's not looking good. And I think I had another friend there, um, who I won't name actually because he values his anonymity, but he, he actually suggested, I think, that we get, uh, you know, clergy to, 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 to read the last rites or the anointing of the sick, or both, um, and in fact, uh, there was a Catholic priest who was a friend who came and my uh, parish Anglican priest who, 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 who did that. And, it, you know, I think the feeling then was that I was going to die. And I think it was, yeah, it must have been pretty difficult for my family uh, and indeed for the, for, the, for the vicar. Yeah. So could we talk a bit about your faith, James, because... I mean, a lot of people know you as um, you're an author of, you know, political biographies, the national newspapers, you worked in television. Um, and you've had a really, really great journalistic career. But can you tell me about how your, your, your Christian faith came about? I read a book called Who Moved the Stone uh, by um, a journalist who in the 1930 wrote it under the pseudonym Frank Morrison. And he, as you know, um, was an atheist, tried to write a book disproving the resurrection, ended up converting to the faith and writing a brilliant, in my view, book uh, that kind of disproves every other theory um, uh, and thus uh, kind of uh, backing up the resurrection. And that had a really powerful effect. Um, it's the closest I've come, I would say, to a kind of religious experience. When I finished that, um, it felt like the resurrection was a reality that kind of changed everything. And as your journalistic career got off the ground, did you say you, were you going to church at that time? Yeah, I, I was. And uh, what happened was I brief, oh, just very briefly, I worked in television on BBC Question Time and things like that after leaving the Jonathan Dimbleby programme as it then was on ITV at LWT. And I wanted to go into print journalism, so I went to the independent newspaper which um, where my father worked, although he did not help me get that job, I hasten to say for the record, um, rather the reverse actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, but... Um, I wanted to maintain my interest in faith and so I, I was briefly their religious affairs correspondent um, and then I went to the New Statesman and asked the New Statesman to let me continue covering it and interviewed Rowan Williams and things like that but um, so I still went to church at that point I was going to St Peter's Clapham uh, so I, 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 but I, so the faith, faith was a factor and then um, did the Miliband book uh, did a book sorry on Ed Miliband or the Miliband brothers, I then had a, a kind of mental health breakdown, which led me to retreat, as it were, back into the kind of faith world. And um, I worked for Christian Aid and the Christian Press after that, which was a bit less cutthroat than the sort of very secular Westminster world. Sure. And you write in your piece for us that when you had this um, time in, in hospital and, and came close to dying, some, a few of your atheist friends were very curious to know whether this had shaking your faith in God I mean did it yeah it didn't actually but you're absolutely right I mean there, there were several of them and they all kind of had the same question I found it quite amusing actually that 
they just assumed that because it had been a difficult prognosis or diagnosis at my age, 44, um, that, you know, it, it was very soon into our encounters or conversations that they would say, oh, what about your faith, uh, you know, and, um, you know, bless them, um, it's a fair question, uh, but, you know, I don't think that's how it works really um maybe maybe i felt you know why me briefly but uh after a while actually the inescapable slightly scarier conclusion i came to was that i had been given a second chance as you put in the headline of the piece um and that involved some quite somber and serious reassessment of my life and the truth is that i had a lot of time to reflect i wasn't really reading for a long period of the stay in hospital nor listening to the radio or anything and I was just thinking and one of the things I was thinking about is some of the bad things that I'd done in my life up to then um, one of which or the main one really was drinking too much alcohol and so as it happens that was a factor behind the illness I think the sheer goodness of people like the physios and people like the care assistants who are happy to do personal care as it's known is just something that's way out of my league and it's something I want to try and emulate in some way, you know, whether it's volunteering at a hospital, perhaps even that hospital or something, I need to think. But, um, you know, it's time to kind of become a better person, I think. Yeah. And there's this moment, I think, when your sister visited you, this is uh, what, halfway through or, or yeah. through your time in hospital. That's right. And I had some really sort of honest words with you. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for that, because it was significant. She just said, I don't think she'd planned to necessarily, but she just said, look, I mean, I was very down at this point. I'd just moved out of ICU into another ward. I was a bit isolated in a room, I think because of infections and things. And I didn't really have the will at that point to go on sort of agreeing to all the procedures and everything. And... Yeah, my sister Sophie just said, look, I suppose you're going to have to decide whether to live or die. And, you know, it had a kind of slow motion effect, I think. Over the next few days, uh, I realised that she was right. And I mentioned this line from Jesus in St. John's Gospel um, at the pools of Bethesda in Jerusalem, where he says, I think, um, do you want to be made well or or something like that, uh, to the man languishing in the pools for decades. And um, that's what it reminded me of. And I've always found, actually, on my trips to Jerusalem, that spot where there's a French Catholic church, St Anne's, named after um, Mary's mother, uh, a very powerful place. And it just kind of hit home, yes, that is the question. Do you actually want to live? And I've always thought that line from Jesus is multi-layered. And... Um, Yes, I realised I kind of did. Um, and now I, I really am trying to sort of get better and seize life in a way that I never had really. I'd always been, the truth is, Ed, I'd always been slightly ambivalent about that question. And now I really feel positive about it. And how is it since you've come out of hospital? It's been great. I mean, I'm very lucky to have such a good support network as they call it you know friends and family my family particularly have just been amazing as of my friends um you know i'm walking more slowly i find steps difficult i'm physically a bit weaker i lost a huge amount of muscle as well as fat in the coma so i had to learn to walk again and that meant zimmer frames and all sorts of things uh but the physio said look there's no reason why you can't get back to normal and 
you know, as you can see, we've just been walking around. Um, I'm pretty much back to normal and I'm just deeply grateful for that. I'm sort of trying to, you know, stay out of trouble and, uh, and live a kind of slightly more wholesome life. And, um, I, I definitely give thanks more than I did. I, I never gave thanks enough and I'm just very grateful. We hear it all about, I mean, see, in the church times we cover difficulties in the church, disillusionment with the church, but I, I just wonder about your, through this, your experience as, as a um, member of the congregation of, a, mm. of your parish church or your local church, what, what difference it made? Absolutely. Great question, because I firmly believe, no matter what the hierarchy is doing in the Anglican Communion or the Church of England, that the parish priests on the ground are the heroes who are actually shepherding people's souls, looking after people um, on estates and in all sorts of circumstances. And that doesn't always mean evangelical, you know, conversions and preaching and sort of roaring on about the gospel. It just means being there and being alongside people. And, you know, I genuinely think that these, these clergy who visited me in hospital repeatedly you know, did so with 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 a good uh, heart and 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 were happy to do so in a way that I just, as I say, I think in the piece, you know, turned society's priorities on their heads because um, they just sat there and they just were with me. And sometimes I was, you know, almost vomiting. Some I was in a lot of pain. I was not on good form, and they were not, you know, banging on about religion or anything. But they were there. And uh, I can't thank them um, enough. And they kept the congregation informed. And it's not just me. I mean, you know, I, I discovered, of course, in due course, that they had lots of other commitments, lots of other people to visit. People were dying and, and they just go out and they go anywhere that there's a need. And um, I think it's a real reminder that, you know, actually the church, you know, is a good institution that has a lot of good in it um no matter what you uh, uh might uh, think of of, of elements at, at, at the top thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.